I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The only person I lost in the camps was my younger brother. Mm. But... What was his name? His name was um, Herman. We, we knew him as Hermie, H-E-R-M-I. The three of us, my little brother, I and my mother, were sent to the camps. My brother survived for two years. We were taken to the camps in 1941. In 1943, I was age 13. I became a part of a sort of slave labor gang. We had to go out and um, work on the railways. The Allies were bombing the German railway mm. lines. And close to our camp, and that, that's all we did, mm. seven, seven days a week for one year mm. in that camp. So I was out working, but there were four young children who had survived these two years from 41 to 43. They were permitted to stay in the camp during the day and we returned from work, and eventually we were told by one man who worked in the camp kitchen, he told us that two SS men had come into the camp, said they had orders to pick up these children and had taken them away. And mm. it's sort of practically a certainty that these children were dead before the end of the day. But we have not found anything about my brother. The day he disappeared, disappeared off the face of the earth, we have been searching more or less incessantly for, for 70 plus years. Today is Holocaust Memorial Day, and that's the voice of Manfred Goldberg. In this episode, we'll hear his story. Manfred is one of a dwindling number of survivors who are still able to give their testimony firsthand. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, remembering the Holocaust in the 21st century. I went to see Manfred a couple of weeks ago. We were in his family home, which is in Hendon, North London. We sat in his living room. That Sunday Times special correspondent Josh Glancy talking to Manfred. You just heard part of that interview. Prince Charles, as patron of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, has commissioned seven portraits of seven Holocaust survivors to commemorate and honour their stories. One of those portraits is Manfred's. 
his wife Shari was there. Well, certainly Manfred is in his 90s. They're both of advanced age, but very sprightly, very welcoming, very jovial. There was a spread of cookies and cakes out on the table. And we were offered water and tea. And Manfred sat and told this story, which he's told many times now. You know, he's, he's an extraordinary orator, very eloquent, very composed, very powerful. But each time he tells it, you could tell there's still a huge amount of emotion that he feels. Incidentally, let me show you something. I'll, I'll bring it back. Okay. If you're talking about portraits, we have mm. a portrait here of Hermie. During this conversation, he actually got the picture of, of Herman. He has a portrait that was painted of him, which the portrait was painted from a small photograph, a portrait photograph that Manfred's father had sent him while he was recuperating from the war in Germany. He found someone to paint a picture of, of Herman. And I don't know how it came into my mind, but it occurred to me that I, I wanted to make a painting mm. from that photograph. And this was the end result. Mm. This was done in 1945. And on my mother's birthday, I presented it to her, which was of course a highly emotional mm. thing to do. And um, that, that is the only family portrait in our possession. And so this, and it's this rather angelic, sweet-looking, blonde little boy. So he's sort of telling us that story, and, and we're, we're sort of sitting in his home with around him are pictures of his many children and grandchildren, and and the sort of detritus of a happy life, a happy, good family life. He's a religious man; it's a very obviously Jewish home, and you know the home stands in really strong contrast, I suppose, to the story he's telling, which is of frankly unimaginable cruelty, deprivation, and loss. We can sometimes read these stories or maybe look at some of the statistics from the period and you don't necessarily have to feel anything about it. And then you talk to somebody whose relative this was and it becomes something different. Tell me tell me how it, how it was for you. I've grown up in a Jewish household where the Holocaust was ever present. It was a constant thing in the background. We watched all the films, we watched all the documentaries, we read the books. You know, I grew up reading Primo Levi. I watched into this when I was about seven years old and cried my eyes out. So you think you know these stories, they feel very familiar in some ways, but it's very, very different when you're sitting, having a cup of tea with someone, uh, and they tell you their story, they give you their testimony, they, they share their witness uh, and their loss. It it's hard to describe. It, it's a sense of you really feel quite overwhelmed by the, by the scale and the horror of it in a way that nothing else can really hit you quite as strongly. Okay, so you're in Manfred's house and you've described that there's tea and there's cake and cookies uh, on offer. And yet the period he's describing is a period when people like him were deliberately, almost deliberately starved. Yes, and I think both him and, and other survivors I spoke to uh, really talk about the primacy of, of food in their lives. There's all, they always like to have food around. I don't think anyone who's not experienced starvation can comprehend it properly. You really have no other sensations other than looking for food, wanting food, thinking about food. And that's your whole day is to see if you can find another scrap of bread. The one thing I find, I was going to say very difficult, but 
possibly the true answer is impossible to put into words, is the effect this permanent hunger has on a person. Mm. It sort of seems to drown every other emotion. Mm. It's the uppermost thing in one's mind. I want some food. Uh, and he said to me, you know, not a day went by when people were, who were alive in the morning were no longer alive that evening. It was, there was this sense of people just being picked off one by one. And so food just becomes this kind of great celebration, really, I suppose. Every meal, even 70 years later or 80 years later, every meal is is a joy because because of that. Let's talk a bit more about Manfred's life before all this happened. Can you tell us a bit more about his upbringing and the circumstances of his life before the war? So he grew up in a middle-class Orthodox Jewish family in Kassel. It's a, it's a smallish town in central Germany, fairly unremarkable place. The, their experience of the Nazis began quite early. So early in Manfred's life, from 1933 onwards, you start to have these reduction in rights, this kind of slow stripping of their humanity and their human rights. So he stops going to school when he's eight or nine. He remembers Kristallnacht in 1938 and, you know, an attack on his parents' shop. He remembers his father being arrested and, and falling into real difficulties with the Nazis. And so his father made a plan to get a visa to get out because he feared for his life. And a British spy, actually, Frank Foley, uh, who later became what's known as a righteous Gentile, someone who helped Jews escape the Holocaust, arranged for a visa for Manfred's father, Baruch. And the plan was that the rest of the family would follow a couple of weeks later. But unfortunately, the war broke out in the interim. And so obviously Frank Foley could no longer arrange visas. And that's how Manfred got separated from his father. So the father, Baruch, came to London and lived here for six years and had no idea, none at all, what had happened to his family. What had happened was that in 1941, Manfred, his little brother Herman, and their mother were transported from their home in Kassel to the Riga ghetto in Nazi-occupied Latvia. The ghetto had already been cleared of Latvian Jews. They had all been murdered. German Jews were brought in, including Manfred and his family. Amidst the horror, Manfred remembers that some humanity was possible. His education was massively curtailed. His father, obviously, was separated from him. And so he didn't have much of education in the ghetto. There weren't really schools or anything like that. But he found a teacher in the ghetto who was very busy trying to get young men and, and women and, and teach them. He formed a choir, he tried lots of different lessons and he said to Manfred, you know, I'd love to teach you for your bar mitzvah, which is the coming of age ceremony that a Jewish boy has when he's 13. He came up to me and he said, you know, your 12th birthday has passed, um, your bar mitzvah is approaching and I've steeled myself to admit publicly that I had no idea what bar mitzvah meant. And on that day, in order to ha have what's called a bar mitzvah, you need to have a quorum of 10 men. Mm -hmm. And of course, everyone had to go to work. There was never ever a religious mm. uh, service in the camp, to my knowledge. But on that day, somehow, he had managed to rustle up nine men, and I was counted for the first time ever as number 10. Mm which I remember made me feel quite proud even then. Hmm. But that, that was my bar mitzvah experience. And as far as I know, um, this was never repeated. 
I, I can't believe that there wasn't another boy who passed sort of his, his bar mitzvah mm. birthday in the camps, but I, I was not aware of it ever happening again. For this process, you learn a, a portion of the Torah and you learn how to read it and sing it aloud. It's actually quite a sort of difficult process. You have to learn all the notes and to read it properly. And, and, and Manfred really hadn't had much education at this point at all. But this man taught him over a period of months. It's an incredible scene you have to imagine here, isn't it, of these Jews in the Riga ghetto. Life is incredibly precarious. They don't know the ne- what the next day will bring. Maintaining the faith in the face of all that. Yes, it's incredibly inspiring, really. Even if one doesn't share the faith, it's that ability to affirm your humanity, your culture, your traditions in the face of just enormous cruelty and deprivation. And so much of the Nazi genocide was about stripping Jews and others and gypsies and homosexuals and Slavs and whoever else was caught up in it of their humanity to treat them like cattle, to tattoo them like cattle, to put them all in the same clothes, to starve them. It's just everything about it is inhuman. And for a religious Jewish boy, to have your bar mitzvah is, is an affirmation of you know, the exact opposite of that. It's this is who I am. This is my tradition. I'm going to, despite it, despite everything, I'm going to sing my portion and become a man today. And, and I think that's why he, he values it so highly. From the Riga ghetto in 1943, Manfred was taken to a labor camp nearby at Prechu. The only way to survive was to work, and to work you had to be old enough, so he lied about his age. He said he was 17. Somehow, he and his mother survived, and he ended up in Stutthof concentration camp in Germany. It was only after the war that they were sent on a death march just towards the end of the war, which was basically a kind of forced relocation from one camp to another. As, as the Nazi war machine started to collapse, they started to move people around, and they're called death marches for the fairly obvious reason that... People, many, many people died on them and they were kind of walking, starving and often shot and, and collapsed on the way. But he survived. His mother survived. In 1946, once they had convalesced and re-established contact with his father, they arrived at Victoria train station one day to meet his dad. Uh, his dad got the wrong platform, so he was waiting there rather dejectedly. His wife and son very confused but eventually they all met up at his house where he was living and the family was reunited but without Herman. After the war ended how did the rest of the world deal with what it had learned about the Holocaust? That's after this message. Hi I'm John Witherow editor of The Times. Thanks to you we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Last year, a Turkish cult leader was sentenced to over a thousand years in jail. There is only one purpose in life and it's love. But what happened? Everyone is ready in the world right now to believe anything. The Messiah and His Kittens. A new four-part series beginning this Friday, here on the Stories of Our Times podcast, with me, Louise Callahan, the Middle East correspondent for The Sunday Times. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today, we remember the Holocaust in particular ways. But how did that memory evolve? Immediately after the Second World War, there wasn't the same recognition of the scale of what had happened as there is now. But back in those days, after being present at the liberation of the concentration camp at Bergen-Belsen, one British journalist tried to tell the world what he'd seen. Yeah, it's a fascinating moment, this. So Richard Dimbleby, he was with the BBC and made a very famous radio broadcast from Bergen-Belsen after it was liberated by British troops. It was a very large concentration camp in Germany. As we went deeper into the camp and further from the main gate, we saw more and more of the horrors of the place. And I realised that what is so ghastly is not so much the individual acts of barbarism that take place in SS camps, but the gradual breakdown of civilization that happens when human beings are herded like animals behind barbed wire. Richard Dumbuy was there and he, he made this very emotive, powerful radio broadcast. It was about 11 minutes long. And his bosses at the BBC were very, very wary of it. They didn't like it. They, they, were, I think they were worried it would rock the boat. They didn't, they didn't feel comfortable with it at all. They, they, they weren't sure they were going to run it. Richard Dimbleby hit the roof, threatened to resign. Eventually, they ran a slightly shorter version of it. But they also took out the word Jews from it. It was obvious to Richard Dimbleby that the vast majority of the prisoners in Belsen, these kind of starving, emaciated, uh, deprived people who he was seeing were Jewish, and that's why they were there. But the BBC weren't comfortable. They weren't comfortable particularizing it. They didn't want to ruffle feathers. They didn't think that should be part of it. They just thought we were all victims of the Nazis and we don't want to make it particularly about Jewish victims. So they cut that word from the broadcast, which is probably one of the most famous radio broadcasts of all time, about the liberation of this concentration camp. And it just didn't mention the Jews. And and that's a sort of, I guess, symbolizes some of what came next, which is over the succeeding decades, the Holocaust was discussed, the genocide 
the Nazi atrocities. You had Anne Frank's diary came out in the 50s. It was known that something terrible had happened and it happened particularly to Jews, but it wasn't, it didn't have this kind of place in the forefront of our historical memory. It wasn't discussed, analysed, properly kind of felt by people until much later. Why do you think that was? Well, it's intriguing, isn't it? I think there was a feeling that it didn't really fit into the British war narrative. There was this narrative of Britain alone and the Blitz spirit and Dunkirk spirit and the Battle of Britain and the survival of the few and how how Britain had stood against the Nazis. And the idea of then focusing on Jewish suffering, Jewish trauma, I think was felt somehow separate from that. A slightly less happy possibility is, is that perhaps people didn't feel that strongly about Jewish suffering. That, For example... Britain wasn't very good at letting Jewish Holocaust survivors into the country after the war. They let very few in. So there is a sense that perhaps there wasn't, just wasn't as much sympathy. A lot of people have commented that in the initial stages, survivors were reluctant to talk about what they'd been through and certainly reluctant to kind of throw themselves on the court of public sympathy. Yeah, that's right. I think there's quite a lot going on there. One aspect is just the repression of trauma. So people didn't necessarily want to tell their stories or feel that they could. There's also a, you know, there's a British mentality, I suppose, of just get on with things, stiff upper lip and all that. And among Jews, British Jews in particular, there was a sense, well, we don't want to make a fuss. The war's over. It's done. These stories were just not widely told. This really only started to change in the late 70s. So when did Manfred, in the context of this, when did Manfred first tell his story and begin to realise that he could and that there were people who wanted, needed to hear about it? It was over 30 years after he arrived in Britain that Manfred first told his story. The member of his local synagogue had asked him to come and give a talk who knew about what Manfred had been through or some of it. And he said no many times and he just felt he couldn't. But eventually his wife started to suggest, actually, you know, this might be good for you. And he decided that he, he wanted to do it. And as I, as I alluded to, it was, it was an incredibly traumatic experience for him. Between agreeing and actually speaking, it was about three weeks. Mm. And there were three weeks I cannot forget because each night when I went to bed, to sleep um, had the most vivid images. Before that, I I was not troubled. Mm. My experiences were firmly lodged in my memory. Mm. In fact, remarkably, they have not dimmed with with Mm. age. Many other much more recent memories are beginning to fade. Mm. But those experiences seem to be, I, I, I don't know, it was not only leading up to the talk, <clears throat> once I'd given the talk, it would take me days or rather nights to calm down again. Mm. It would continue, the, so the images would continue. Mm. And after the talk, lots of people from his synagogue came up to him and said, we had no idea, we had no idea about any of this and, and we didn't think you were a survivor. And he said, well, what, why not? They said, well, you seem too normal. <laughs> he's, he's a very jovial man, and I think they just, I suppose people assumed that a survivor would, would somehow feel haunted or, or tragic, but he doesn't when you meet him. And then slowly after this talk, the kind of floodgates began to open, and he gave some more talks to Jewish audiences, and then the Holocaust Educational Trust said, well, you're, you're actually, you're a brilliant witness. I mean, you, you hear the guy talk, he's impeccable. 
it's emotional, but it's also very composed. His memory is superb. It, you know, he's in his 90s now. He says these memories are seared so deep into him. He says he forgets things that happened last year, but he never forgets this experience. And so eventually he became a, a survivor who was an advocate and, and a voice and a, and a witness that many, many thousands of people have heard his story told in different ways. So Manfred came over, rejoined with his father. Not many people really talking about the Holocaust for one reason or another. And then it began to be talked about more. You mentioned Anne Frank's diary in the 1950s. What were the other factors that really brought both the word Holocaust and the memories of the Holocaust as a major factor into British discussion? Yes, because it's worth noting that the word Holocaust didn't even really exist until the 1960s. And in Britain, people knew of Bergen-Belsen because pictures have been splashed all over the Daily Mirror and Dimbleby made his broadcast, but they didn't really know about Auschwitz or the broader tapestry of, of the Holocaust and what happened. This changed in the... Well, there were some, some landmark moments. So you had the trial of Adolf Eichmann in 1961... I'm standing in front of the building where, in only a few hours' time, what is being described as the trial of the century will begin, and the eyes of the world will fall upon Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi responsible for organizing the mass murder of six million European Jews. The new state of Israel then had, had basically picked up Eichmann in Argentina, a sort of secret mission, and brought him, put him on trial in Jerusalem, and this riveted the world great articles and books written about it. It was a stunning moment. And it, and it was a chance after the dust had settled a little bit to properly assess the crimes of the Holocaust by Eichmann, who was one of its chief architects. And then you had other things. You had documentaries. There was a very famous documentary called Return to Auschwitz about someone called Kitty Hart Moxon, who had survived Auschwitz. It's most important now. Do you know why? Because there are people in this world, they said that this has never happened. They're writing about it. They're saying, oh, this has all been, you know, it's not true. You are here just to see that it is true. It was true. And so that when you have children, you can bring them here and tell them about this. And I owe this to all, all the people, people that have died. I'm sure I do. I don't know if you've ever seen The World at War, the great war documentary. That has an episode on the Holocaust that's Certainly very did. powerful. What we went through will be difficult to understand even for our contemporaries and much more difficult for the generations that have already no personal experience from those days. So that started to bring it to a popular audience. You know, I think people who really knew about this kind of thing, whether they were Jews or people very interested in history and the war knew, but the, the kind of popular consciousness began to form really in the 70s by... 1988, the Holocaust Educational Trust is founded, which is now the sort of probably central body that works around the Holocaust in Britain. It's based on the national curriculum in 1991. And in 1993, you have Schindler's List. And by this time, it's really gone mainstream and starts to resemble the place it has in our lives and in our culture today. Josh, how do we think about the Holocaust now compared with how we did? And a secondary question to that... You could think that the Holocaust has become sacralized, and I mean by that, you say the word, everybody thinks they know what it means. 
and maybe it kind of begins to pass over their heads and they don't think about it properly. Is that a problem you recognise? Yes, I think it is. It has a link in a way to this terrible overuse of the accusation of Nazism or Hitlerism in conversation, particularly on the internet. And that's actually what I found very meaningful doing this piece was actually to refocus my attention on survivors, on their stories, on what really happened, not on the Holocaust as discourse. You're right, it does have a kind of sacral quality and, and the survivors have taken on this. I mean, they're very ordinary people in many ways, but they also have this saintly mystique almost, although few of them would, <laughs> would want it necessarily. Doing this article, I, yeah, the article is based on a series of portraits that have been commissioned by Prince Charles, seven portraits of seven of the last survivors. Uh, and they're going to hang in the Queen's Gallery. And there's a BBC documentary being made about it. And it's, you know, it's pretty clear, it's explicit, in fact, that part of the reason Prince Charles wanted to do this project was because these are the last survivors among us. Hmm. They're all in their 90s. There won't be many left in only a few years' time. So he wanted these portraits to memorialize them in a, in a slightly different way. But we all have to confront the fact that this extraordinary testimony will not be with us in firsthand, at least, in a few years' time. And that's inevitable. You know, living history becomes just history. But we have to think about how we remember the Holocaust after that. For me, focusing on the particulars, the stories, the details, and all this testimony, a lot of it is recorded, is much more powerful than, you know, just thinking about it as a political event or as a kind of historic event. It really helps to actually hear one story told in detail because otherwise the statistics can kind of overwhelm you a bit. It can just feel a bit too much, really. Tell us how Manfred wants to be remembered. Sure. Um, Manfred felt, he's, as I said, he's had four children. He's got 12 grandchildren. And he said to me, you know, I feel like my children... My family is, is my revenge against the Nazis. He's incredibly proud of them all. And he's a man who has lived a very happy, productive life. He was a successful electronics executive. He helped do some of the wiring in the lab for the first colour TVs. <laughs> he's had this, he's a real family man. He's lived in a community. He's been eminent and loved. And he is happy. He's chatty. He's, of course, haunted by this trauma. He, 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 particularly the loss of his brother and the search for him. But he is happy. And speaking to Clara Drummond, who's the woman who painted him for the portrait, she said he really emphasised to her, I want to be portrayed as a happy man. And it can be hard to believe when you hear his story that he could be a happy man, but, but he is. And, you know, when we were looking at the pictures to go with this article, the print version of this article, I, I really said to the, to the editors, I really think you should pick one of him smiling because that's, you know, that best portrays the man, which I think is, is again, his what better revenge than to have a happy life. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, special correspondent for The Sunday Times, Josh Glancy. You also heard from Holocaust survivor Manfred Goldberg, you can read Josh's article featuring that interview with Manfred in this week's Sunday Times. Today's producers were Brenna Daldorf and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. 
If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.